Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Errol Morris is one of my favorite filmmakers. He's the kind of director that gets shown in film schools all the time. He's contributed that much to the field of documentary making. But have you actually seen his movies, Gates of Heaven, or Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, or even the short documentaries that he made for ESPN? They are entertaining and fascinating and exceptionally watchable, not like impenetrable or boring art house films. Morris has a way of painting these portraits of people, nuanced and funny, tragic, fascinating. His newest movie, My Psychedelic Love Story, tells the tale of LSD advocate Timothy Leary's longtime partner, Joanna Harcourt Smith. She was an author, an activist, and according to Errol, maybe a CIA plant. That's classic Errol Morris material, folks. When I talked with him in 2018, he just released something really interesting, a Netflix miniseries called Wormwood. It was a bit of a departure for Errol. First, he set aside his signature Interatron, which is an elaborate device that lets his subjects make eye contact with him while also making eye contact with the viewer. Instead of using the Interatron, he's conducting interviews on camera. He also draws on the work of actors to tell the story for much of the film as well. The movie is classic Morris in a lot of ways. It focuses on Frank Olson, a former CIA biochemist who died mysteriously decades ago, and his son, Eric, who's worked for years to uncover the truth about his life and death. Let's take a listen to a little bit from Wormwood. In this scene, Eric Olson is talking about reading the results of a 1975 government investigation into his father's death. When the story came out in the Rockefeller Commission report, I get this phone call from my brother-in-law. You should read the Washington Post today. So I ran down to out-of-town news in Harvard Square, get the Washington Post, (laughs) read this thing, and I'm just totally blown away. There it is on the front page, suicide revealed. The Rockefeller Commission has discovered that an Army scientist, after being drugged with LSD, jumped out the window of a New York hotel. How many scientists could be jumping out of windows in 1953 in New York City? This has got to be my father. But wait, they didn't call us, they didn't notify us, they didn't say it's your father. How do you know? Maybe it isn't. Aaron Morris, welcome back to Bullseye. I'm very happy to see you. Thank you for having me here. You put me in this box. Yeah, well, this is called a recording studio. (laughs) But it looks like a box. It is a weird, it is a weird like modular recording studio that I bought on Craigslist. I will admit to that. Um, I hope you didn't overpay for it. No, I underpaid for it, if anything. Yeah, this this is a bargain basement recording box. There's no doubt about that. Um... Errol, one of the things that happens in a lot of your documentaries is we hear someone, we see someone speaking for themselves about their own experience. And because of the way that you shoot them, 
um, they are looking right at us. They're making eye contact with us in a way that is unusual in documentary film because you have created a, a machine that's a little bit like a teleprompter uh, that puts your face as you interview the subject in the line of sight of the camera directly. Essentially, it's two teleprompters, but you're close. Okay. <laughs> Just one teleprompter off. Um, in this film, we see you on camera talking to your subject. You were shocked? I was, I was genuinely shocked because I had, you know, from watching even, you know, you made an entire television program called First Person, which was built around a person staring into the barrel of the camera and talking about their, themselves and their experience, right? You've directed, you've made a living making television commercials with that premise, you know? You've done so much, and mostly all we get of you is you kind of barking at someone from off screen. Yes. A little bit. I don't often think of it as barking, but have it your way. <laughs> So why is why are you on camera asking questions in this movie? One of the reasons, if there is any reason, and there may not be any reason to make documentaries, but if there is any reason. Uh, I hope for your sake there is. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. You get this opportunity to reinvent the form every time you make one. In principle, it's possible, and in principle, maybe that's what you should be doing. I hate to make this into a kind of moral edict, but I like to think that each time I'm making one of these things, that I can change it up. I can do something different. I can reinvent the form. I can f with people. Why? Why not? <laughs> How does it end up being different? I mean, we can get into the fact that the new movie also has, you know, much more developed uh, dramatic narrative actorly bits than any of your other films. But even just this one part. M more actorly dramatic bits. It's also known as drama. Yeah. But there's plenty of drama in your uh, in your interviews as well. I was trying to figure out what the word what's the what's the word for they sometimes they call it narrative, but nonfiction films are of narrative as well. It's tricky because Wormwood in particular demands some new kind of nomenclature. Um, how do you really even describe this? I sold it as the everything bagel. Uh, because I said, I'm going to put everything in this. I'm going to put drama, reenactment. Caraway seeds. Uh, everything but raisins. Yeah. Raisins are gross. Raisins don't belong in bagels. They're okay by themselves. I don't mind a raisin by itself, but I don't like a raisin added to almost anything else. There Oatmeal, maybe. There you go. Yeah. So, but let's talk specifically about the raisins with constraints. <laughs> let's talk about the interview parts specifically first before we get before we get into uh, yeah the acting parts. How is it? Different? I'm at your mercy. I mean, I'm in this box. What yeah. am I going to do when you're sh when you're <laughs> shooting with when you're shooting as you did with like uh, a million cameras in this new movie, like ten or something like ten, that, right? 
So you're shooting this interview with 10 different cameras. Someone asked me why 10. I said because it was one more than nine. There you go. So you get into the, you get into the editing studio and you're starting to put together the film. What was different about having those 10 shots, one of which is you on camera, or maybe more than one of which is you on camera, um, than when you are primarily using this eye contact down the barrel shot? that has been the signature of many of your movies? What's different? Well, I hate people who repeat questions, but I'll repeat it anyway. What's different? It's a different experience. Um, in the Interatron, I'm hidden away behind a second teleprompter. And it's almost as if, I used to describe smoking as a way of simplifying the world. Because when you're smoking, there are only three things that you have to consider. There's you, the cigarette, and the rest of the world is the ashtray. <laughs> On the Interatron, there's you, your subject, and you're really closely connected. Uh, the amazing thing about it is the rest of the world just vanishes. It's intense, personal, focused. Um, moving away from that, there were a whole number of reasons. Um, you know, part of it is the desire not to be a one-trick pony, even if I am a one-trick pony. I don't want to be seen as such. I like to think, oh, he's so inventive. He is always trying something new and something different. Well, we had these 10 cameras, and I've been playing with multiple cameras over the years. And the protagonist, I think it's a fair way to describe him, of Wormwood, Eric Olson, Frank Olson's son, came in. He was nervous about the interview. He saw the 10 cameras, or maybe he didn't register all 10 of them, but he saw there are a lot of cameras here. Mm, oh, my. And sat down, and he decided just to surrender. I thought of it uh, not unlike a cornered animal who realizes that there is no hope. Just give up. I mean, that's a little bit like what the effect of the Interatron is. No! Yes, it is. No! That it is. I think that when you are shooting someone, you know, ordinarily in this kind of interview document documentary situation, maybe you're shooting somebody with two cameras or one camera behind the interviewer and, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe there's a master, there's a, there's a shot of the two people talking together and there's one that's over the shoulder of the interviewer or there's a kind of talking head shot, you know. And in those situations, I think if you are the person on camera, you are very aware of your performance to those cameras. And 10 cameras or that Interatron camera are both ways of making the camera disappear for the subject. Either with the Interatron, it is because that subject almost immediately feels like they're talking directly to a person and the camera has almost disappeared. And with 10 cameras, it's like there's no camera to address because there's just too many cameras. It's like overwhelm. God, you've described this really, really well. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm glad you agree with it because I said a lot of stuff. 
I do agree. Um, I didn't realize this at first when I s started using the Interatron that it produced this effect. I mean, there's no r way to really predict this kind of thing without actually doing it. But you don't see the camera anymore. All you see is my face in limbo. And I often thought of it like the old AT&T ads, and they'd say the, uh, the next best thing to being there. And I would always think that it was um, incorrectly expressed. Being there is the next best thing to using the telephone because you're limiting stuff. You're focusing on a certain aspect of communication. Like, do I really need to see you now? Is that really necessary? With the Interatron, the camera vanishes. For all intents and purposes, it's gone. The crew is gone. Everything is gone except, God, what a nightmare. Everything is gone except for me. <laughs> <laughs> what a delight, Errol. Not a nightmare. Quite the opposite. Why, thank you. The multiple cameras, it's different again. Uh, it certainly changes the way in which an interview is edited. Perhaps that's even obvious. You have all these angles to choose from. Um, and on the Avid, it's made really quite simple. You just press a button and you can go through the cameras one by one by one by one. But at the heart of this story is this idea of collage. Perhaps at the heart of every real detective story is this idea of collage. Because what is a detective doing? In effect, he's doing something that we're all doing all the time. It's trying to put the world together in a way that makes sense. And it amounts to bits and pieces. You know, the detritus of the world are experiences uh, glued, stitched, stapled together in a way that hopefully forms a picture of what's out there in reality. Um, the whole collage idea is a central part of Wormwood. A collage of different kinds of forms from uh, ar archival to home movies uh, to these interviews with multiple cameras to drama. And I tried to emphasize that in the way in which every part of it was shot. The graphics are collaged. The interviews are collaged. Uh, the drama itself actually has collage elements as well. So why am I proud of it? 25, it's now over 25 years ago, it shocks me. When I made The Thin Blue Line, I tried something really different. Uh, I asked Philip Glass to write a score. It's not something that you really do that often in documentary. At that time, it was something that was close to unheard of. And I used stylized reenactments of the murder, which is at the center of the story, the murder of a Dallas police officer on a barren roadway in West Dallas. Now you see it everywhere. I'm reminded of this line in Conan the Barbarian. Used to be just another snake cult. 
Nah, you see it everywhere. And that's certainly true of the style of the Thin Blue Line. It's endlessly imitated, copied. Here, I think I've done something even more innovative and more dramatic. I've tried to stitch together so many different elements. So many elements that I wondered, is this going to even work? Is this going to be confusing? Is this going to be totally beyond the pale? <laughs> and I believe it works. Am I the best judge of this? Oh, wait a minute. I'm promoting myself here. Of course it works. It's great. It's fantastic. <laughs> I, I feel like there is a there is this... One of the great moments in Wormwood, at least for me, a, a moment that really surprised me is Eric, the son of the man who's died, whose mystery the film partly tries to unravel, is talking about I, – I, I think he's talking if, – if I remember correctly, he's talking about visiting the White House. He's invited to the White House uh, not long after his father dies. Uh, because well, or not long after they they've start to realize there's something weird about his father having died. And it's because the government essentially wants to give him something uh, to land on that will keep him from bothering them more. I think it's called throwing him a crumb. Yes. And he essentially kind of – he apologizes – for the fact that his memory of these events is not purely narrative, that he does not remember the sequence of events and every event in them and remember them in order, but rather that he simply remembers certain impressions of the events. And this is, you know, something that happened 35, 40 years ago. And that that little moment in the film, I mean, that's that's what memory is, like... No one remembers their lives narratively, I don't think. I certainly don't. We should get down on our knees. Uh, if you're a believer, you could go ahead and thank God. If not, thank anyone of your choice. Thank God that we remember so little. You were a private investigator for quite a while. Um, yeah. Do you feel like the purpose of getting involved in a mystery is because you want to solve it? You want the satisfaction of, you know, completing a puzzle? Well, yeah. Um, I'm tempted to say, duh. <laughs> but that wouldn't be nice. Um, occasionally, you get paid to do this kind of thing. I was paid as a private detective, but Okay, I'll fess up. Was my primary motivation money? No. I'm not even sure what my primary motivation was. Curiosity, a desire to learn something that I didn't know. Why people search for the truth or even search for any kind of answers? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Part of... Our species, and I really do believe that this is an extremely rotten species. I don't care what you've read, what peons to man, what encomiums to the human experience. I think it's a pretty miserable, miserable species. But we do have one thing going for us, and that is that we have some knowledge of truth. 
we have some knowledge that there is a world outside of ourselves and that perhaps we can come to know something about it through effort, through investigation, through radiocination, whatever you want to call it. I have no idea what the last word you said was. It. I know what it means. But was that radiocination? Thinking. Got it. I'm a public radio host here. I'm supposed to hold my own when people start using big words when I went to public school, you know? Yeah. Well, my favorite of them is um, uh, hippopotamo monstro sesquipedaliophobia. Which is? Fear of large words. <laughs> <laughs> We've got more of my interview with Errol Morris after a quick break. When we come back, a lot of his more recent work focuses on the U.S. government in the mid-20th century. He says it was a crucial turning point in American history and a dark time. We'll talk more about that in a minute. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe, or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. Hey, kid. Your dad tell you about the time he broke Stephen Dorff's nose at the Kids' Choice Awards? In Dead Pilot Society, scripts that were developed by studios and networks but were never produced are given the table reads they deserve. When I was a kid, I had to spend my Christmas break filming a PSA about angel dust. So yeah, being a kid sucks sometimes. Presented by Andrew Reich and Ben Blacker. Dead Pilot Society, twice a month on MaximumFun.org. You know, the show you like, that hobo with the scarf who lives in a magic dumpster. <laughs> Doctor Who? Yeah! Are you ready to take your career to the next level? Well, Life Kit's here to be your career counselor. All this week, we'll have episodes to help you plan your next career move. We'll give our best tips for asking for a raise, finding a mentor, switching careers, and much more. Listen now to the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're listening to my conversation with the filmmaker Errol Morris. Errol is, of course, the director of so many great documentaries, including The Fog of War, The Thin Blue Line, and Gates of Heaven. He's got a new movie out on Showtime, My Psychedelic Love Story. It's about Joanna Harcourt Smith. She was the longtime partner of LSD researcher Timothy Leary and also, maybe, a CIA plant. When we talked in 2018, Morris had just released another documentary that delved into the underbelly of the CIA, Wormwood. That film investigated the death of the government biochemist Frank Olson. Let's get back into it. I feel like part of what you're doing in Wormwood is offering the thing that people often want from uh, a story about a mysterious criminal act, which is offering up the idea that you will get the satisfaction of 
knowing the truth in the end and that the truth will be an interesting surprise. Why did you make that kind of movie? I mean, like The Thin Blue Line, for example. The Thin Blue Line is, uh, you know, that is your investigation of a murder that reveals a surprising truth that was very important in the world and very clearly demonstrated by the film um, and your investigation. There's nothing quite that clear in Wormwood. I was lucky in The Thin Blue Line. You don't know where a story is going to take you. I'm not inventing the story. I'm uncovering uh, a story. Um, you know, it's the real difference uh, between uh, inventing a toaster oven uh, and finding one. Uh, in the Thin Blue Line, I stumbled on a case by accident and pursued it obsessively until I had answers. And there were answers that I could find. It's a detective's, I was going to say, wet dream. I don't think that's so incorrect. What do you dream of? You dream of cracking an extraordinarily complex and difficult case. In this case, a man who came within two days of being strapped into old Sparky, the Texas electric chair, uh, and executed for a crime he most certainly did not commit. Uh, the opportunity to show he was innocent, to get him released from jail, and to show who actually did it. You don't get that opportunity every day. M most cases don't resolve so neatly. There's this fantasy, probably a fantasy created by detective fiction, that somehow if you dig deeply enough um, if you work hard enough, scratch around here and there, and uh, that somehow an answer is going to pop out of the machinery. It's a fantasy I share because what motivates you as a detective is this idea that you're going to arrive at some powerful conclusion. You're going to reveal something that no one else knows about, and you're going to prove it. You're going to prove it beyond, you know, what's the expression, a shadow of a doubt. But the world is strange. It's almost as we move from past to present to future, the world is constantly exfoliating. It's shedding bits and scraps of things. And from those bits and scraps, we try to reconstruct a picture of the world, a picture of, of what might have happened. But what if the evidence is destroyed? What if it's been adulterated? What if we have only a piece of it, but we don't even know that it's a piece of it? We don't even know what's missing. Uh, what then? Is it always possible for incomplete information to reconstruct what the world is like? Why do you think so many of your films are retrospective? Why do you think they're about people's remembrances of events in the past or people's kind of introspections about the past and themselves rather than, you know, why aren't you... Uh, in the moment? Why aren't you at a teen, teen basketball tournament uh, taping interviews with kids who might end up winning and then making a story out of that. 
sports suck. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you made some really great movies about sports. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I like sports, Errol. And also, my condolences. Also, <laughs> um, you know, history, and history does fascinate me. I'm going to tell everybody listening to this a secret. H history is retrospective. You're looking back into the past. We all are looking back into the past. That's all we have really to go on. The present is too fleeting. And the future, who in hell knows about the future? I've been obsessed. What's it called? I'm going to use a big word again, and I'm going to be punished for it. I know it. Epistemology, which is the study of how we know things. It's an obsession with how we know what we know and whether we know anything. Or how reliable is the knowledge that we have? Is it really knowledge or is it some spurious thing? Is it, to coin a phrase, fake news? And all of Wormwood is about this search. It's, it's a, a search through various lockboxes, the lockbox of memory, of history, to try to understand the nature of our obsessions and where they lead us. I like Wormwood because it's like a set of Chinese boxes. There's a story within a story within a story within a story. There's the story of Frank Olson, an army bioweapon scientist who was experimenting with all kinds of lethal bioweapons, including anthrax. It's the story of his son who could never accept the government explanation for why his father died or how he died. And it's, you know, I'll fess up here. It's my obsession with Eric and his quest, a quest which I strongly identify with. And in many ways, it became my quest as well. He asks this question. It's very near the end of the film. Is it a rhetorical question? I'm not sure. What is this about? Now, he's talking about 60 years plus of scratching around, trying to get answers to this mystery. And he gives us an answer, a partial answer, that this is about America. What did indeed happen to this country? A question which I ask myself repeatedly nowadays. I won't say why, but I'll leave it to the listener's imagination. Uh, and Eric says that in the 50s, this is a story that goes back to the origins of the Cold War. Look, we won this war. We, we won the war against Germany and, and Japan. And then we descended into a world of second-guessing, paranoia, and lies. Okay, this was going on forever. But what happened in this period of time that turned America's government into a secret government? And the question, can you really truly have a democracy when the government has to habitually, repeatedly, unremittingly, too many big words I know, lie to its citizens. I think a lot about my dad, who is in his early 70s, and was in the military in the early 60s, came home and worked for decades thereafter in the peace movement. And the relationship that he had with the FBI agents who uh, bugged his phone 
he tell he t- often told me the story when I was a kid of having problems on his line and then someone saying, I'm sorry about that, Mr. Thorne. We'll get this fixed for you. And him waving at them from their office across the street from his office, <laughs> you know, where they were always standing in the window. Um, and that there is this kind of like that – Particularly in that time, there's this very vivid, intense back and forth between the democratic ideals and this idea that there was an existential threat to the country that came from whatever, social change, uh, communists, uh, people with long hair, like whatever it is, that it was like this terrifying time. And, And to me as a 36-year-old, that always seemed like a thing that came from my dad. You know, I was like, oh, that's a thing of my dad's life, not a thing of my life. And in, the, in you know, the last couple of years, I have felt untethered. <laughs> like, uh, there was a time when I felt like, I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on what my government is and uh, the ways in which it doesn't doesn't represent me, you know, and uh, I feel differently about it now. There's something so s- strange, so disorienting when you live in a world where the government that supposedly represents you shares none of your values. What does that mean? I'm not even sure what it means. It leads to a kind of anger despair, but we do seem to be living in an almost hopeless time. Sorry to be such a downer. You're going to throw me out of the box any minute now. You said something in a different interview that that really blew my mind, which was you said, well, you know, we, we as people don't ever think that we're wrong. Like, that's not a way that we think of the world. <laughs> I'm wrong. Yeah. I, I assume that almost everything I think is wrong. And I just hope people will be nice. Let's listen to a scene from Wormwood, uh, the new film slash Netflix series from uh, my guest, Errol Morris. And this is one of the narrative, recreational, professionally acted, scripted portions of the film. It's a something-something. Yeah, okay. One of the something-somethings from the movie. Frank Olson, who is a government scientist who died in mysterious circumstances, is played by Peter Sarsgaard. He, in this scene, uh, has just gone to what amounts to... uh, Uh, like a hunting lodge retreat with some uh, folks from the CIA, some colleagues. And he's, this is in the, in the woods in Maryland, you know, like a ways from Washington, DC. And Tim Blake Nelson plays uh, one of the CIA guys and he's speaking to them and things start to feel weird for Frank, Peter Sarsgaard. Gentlemen, TSS has embarked on a new program called MK Ultra. This program is designed to help us to better understand human behavior 
who we are, what we do, and more importantly, what we could reveal. In this Cold War, the most dangerous weapon is information. When a few scared boys confess on the world stage, it diminishes our country's credibility. We must find a way to contain these lies. You are the men who know the secrets. We are the men who keep the secrets. Our coexistence depends on trust. We see that uh, Frank has been given a cocktail with LSD in it. What did you decide in making this movie? Was your responsibility as a documentarian when you are directing actors in a scripted scene? My responsibility, whether it's with actors or with anything else, is a responsibility to the truth. I'm telling a story about something that really happened, happened in the world, happened in 1953, a historical event, if you want to think of it that way. One of the oddities of this story, let me backtrack quickly. When I made The Thin Blue Line and I used reenactments, the reenactments weren't purporting to show you what really happened. They were illustrations more often than not of lies, things that people said that were untrue, accusations that were made that were false. And the reenactments takes you back into those claims, not reality, but into those claims so you can think about them. You can think about their truth or their falsity. And the aesthetics are pretty specifically non directly representational too. Like you see it and it does not feel like you are looking at a picture of truth. It looks like you are looking at a picture of memory, you know, That's a nice whatever. thing to say. I like to think that's, that's the feeling that is produced. Well, here there's a different kind of thing going on. Uh, when the Rockefeller Commission which was set up by President General Ford, uh, uh, Gerald Ford, when they released their report for the very first time, Frank Olson had gone out that window in 1953. We're now in 1975. The report comes out early in 1975, speaking about an unnamed army scientist who plunged to his death and had been given surreptitiously by the CIA a dose of LSD. So this becomes public knowledge. Eric, the son, is a graduate student at Harvard. He runs to out-of-town news, which is the main news kiosk in Harvard Square, picks up the Washington Post, sees the article, knows, of course, immediately, this is my dad. And within days, he's in the Oval Office of the White House speaking with Gerald Ford and, oddly enough, Donald Rumsfeld. Um, he meets with the then director of Central Intelligence, uh, William Colby. And at the president's direction, Colby gives him a pile, hundreds of pages of documents. The lawyers subsequently referred to them as 
the Colby documents. And in these documents, it's like a filmmaker's dream. They're all of these first-person accounts of what happened to Frank Olson. However, were they true? You don't know. You don't know whether Colby gave the family all of the documents. The CIA director said, here, these are all of the documents on Frank Olson. Do we believe them? CIA tells you something. Do you just take it on faith? Mm, not so much. I mean, it also means that the only thing that we can see in the film that we can purely trust is, in a way, Eric the son's personal experience. That, and, you know, the way that he interprets his own personal experience, not as literal truth. We can trust it as, a, in a way, like a sincere representation of his personal experience, his own. What he went through. And his... that kind of changes what the movie is about, in a way. How so? Well, I mean, it, this is, it could be a movie that is purely about determining the literal truth of this story. That's part of it, certainly. But substantially, it becomes about, because we can look at Eric on screen speaking to us and speaking to you as you try and discover this other story, the story that he is connected to, his father's story, because Eric is there in front of us, it becomes a story about Eric in a way. I agree. There's so many stories. It doesn't have to be story A or story B or story C. Um, you know, I go back to the Russian dolls. There's stories within stories within stories. The story of Frank Olson and the Korean War were biological weapons used by the United States in Korea. A story about a son who is repeatedly lied to by his family and by the U.S. government, the highest echelons of the U.S. government, including the president of the United States, and a story about the government versus us, a whole set of very powerful stories woven together. Uh, I feel lucky to have stumbled on this, and that's the only way to describe it. When I go into a story, it's really not so different from a detective being assigned to a case. Why are you being assigned to a case as a detective? Because somebody, maybe even you, wants to discover something you don't know. Um, you want to learn something. You want to figure something out. And that's certainly true of Wormwood. I mean, what Wormwood made me think of was the scenes in a fictional detective show. Um, I was thinking of The Wire where there's a cork board in the office and the cork board has the pictures of all the people. The, and, there are always cork boards. Right. right. It's a visual representation. You know, it's, a, it's an easy way to show uh, what's... You want cork boards, you want pictures, you want push pins, and you want strings. Yeah. And what Wormwood made me think of as Eric the son is talking about having done his graduate work in the collage method of psychology is what if the corkboard didn't have the strings, you know, that you're putting these things, that you're putting these things next to each other and in a way 
asking the viewer to provide their own interpretation of their relationship between each other. Like instead of that perfect formal form that we usually, you know, that we usually expect from a detective story. Uh, I wrote a book about a detective story that, that I was part of and that has obsessed me over the years involving Jeffrey McDonald, a book called Wilderness of Error. Uh, it comes from a, an Edgar Allan Poe quote in a story, William Wilson, where the protagonist says, I was looking for an oasis of fatality amidst a wilderness of error, a theme which I closely identify with, a story that I could examine, I could scrutinize, I could obsess over, but I couldn't crack it in the end. I could crack part of it, but not all of it. And Wormwood is very much like that. Well, Errol, thank you for taking this time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to have you back on the show. Is it called Bullseye because you plan to shoot me at the end? Yes. Oh, good. Good. Now the name makes complete sense. Yeah. Errol Morris from 2018. Wormwood, his Netflix series from that year, is an addictive binge watch. You can catch his latest movie, My Psychedelic Love Story, right now on Showtime. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I have had to segregate my dogs. One of them was bothering the other one too much, so now I have an upstairs dog and a downstairs dog. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.